0: Welcome to episode 160 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Here is me at a small parties debate representing the Scottish Libertarian Party sometime last year against the spokespersons of two other minor parties in Scotland on the right. The Scottish Socialists were invited to come, but they declined which I think turned out for the good because it kind of helped thin out the differences between different non-left ideologies.
1: Uh, Thank you for coming on this drink Tuesday evening to the small party's question time. Uh, My name's Otto Ingalls, I'm the chairman and we have three panel members. uh, Anthony Samarov uh, from the Scottish Libertarian Party, who is their spokesman on economics and the author of Universal Basic Income, for and Against, and then we have Richard Lucas, who's the leader of the Scottish Family Party. And we have Dr. Stephen Cowley from For Britain, who is the author of Rational Piety and Social Reform.
2: Well, my political background is, is in the SNP, uh, which I joined in 1986 and was in for about 30 years. Um, My main contribution to that was my biography of James Milne, which is, uh, as as has been mentioned, um, who who, who was a Scottish philosopher and and political thinker and reformer. Um, I would say (coughs) I was kind of red-pilled as as the phrase is uh, on the internet, starting around 2011, which made me um, dissatisfied with with essentially the left-wing egalitarian drift of, of, of the SNP. Um, so I found a home in, in For Britain, um, uh, which is partly founded uh, after, by Anne-Marie Waters after um, uh, her unsuccessful bid for the leadership of, of UKIP uh, and Anne-Marie's uh, uh, the author of Beyond Terror and she's involved in Sharia Watch and she has a constitutional uh, project, uh, a British constitutional project that, that uh, certainly I think the Scottish uh, aspects of need to be developed. Okay, Um,
1: forgive me if I just ask you personally a question, is it not a bit of a switch to being from a Scottish nationalist party to a British party?
2: Certainly there are differences, Um, yeah, one was answerable to people down south, which we we never were before, Uh, and certainly there's room for development uh, and and, uh, I think that'll happen in the future, though it, it hasn't happened yet.
1: Okay.
3: Right, uh, Richard, do you want to... Yes, I mean, my political history is quite short. I've always been interested in politics, but it's only been the last, I don't know, f- five or a few more years that I've really been heavily involved in it. So when I first decided I want to get involved in politics, I thought, right, which party? I'd been involved in the Conservatives when I was younger, but I thought if I join the Conservatives now, with all the public statements I've made and all, all, the, all the things I'm on record saying, I thought, there's no point, I'm charging at a brick wall. So there's no point joining the Conservatives, not that I particularly want to in any case. So I thought my, my last hope of a party that will take me but uh, without kicking me out is, uh, is UKIP. So I joined UKIP, you know, the antidote to political correctness. and uh, didn't quite get kicked out, but it wasn't far off it. I r- really ran into the same sort of problems I expected in the Conservatory party. So I ended up so partyless, wondering what to do. And ended up, myself and some other people, decided that uh, the way forward would be a new party, In Scotland, a socially conservative party, we don't use those terms very often because a lot of people don't understand them, but we are basically a socially conservative party, the Scottish Family Party. Our strapline sometimes fills in the void in Scottish politics. We think there is a whole range of perfectly sensible opinions and very valid policies that just don't even get discussed in Scottish politics, they're completely off the agenda. And we think the way to fill that void is to unite everyone possible who agrees on those policies in order to get MSPs in the Parliament. So we're neutral on some of the mainstream political issues like the EU, like Scottish independence, like what should the tax rate be or whatever. So a lot of the usual biggies were neutral in order to be able to bring together the biggest possible coalition of social conservatives. And I hope is that's going to be enough to get MSPs elected on the list into the Scottish Parliament. That's our strategy. So our strategy is very much geared to the Scottish system because it does give a chance to small parties. If we, if we were in England, then our strategy would be completely hopeless, because you're never going to win a seat with our strategy. But in Scotland, if we can appeal to that 5%, 10 15%, which we believe is there, then hopefully we can see MSPs in the Scottish Parliament. So that's my project at the moment. I'm working on it full-time, have been okay. for over a year, and it's, it's building up nicely.
1: Okay. Anthony, Thanks. if you would introduce yourself.
0: Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, real privilege to have been invited. Um, I'm from the Scottish Libertarian Party. The Libertarian philosophy is very simple. It's sometimes uh, colloquially put as, don't hit people, don't take their stuff. Now that's a moral philosophy that we can practice in day-to-day life. We're all taught it as children. We simply apply those those to the political sphere. So the great thing about that, as simple as it sounds to say is, we have a compass on which we base all our philosophy. We believe that only individuals act and that um, the government doesn't have a right to do what private individuals do not have the right to do. And so it's really simple. Um, You can follow your self-interest, you can do what you think is right in day-to-day life as long as you're not um, interceding in the rights of other people to do the same, but that has great implications when it comes to the role of the state, which we think should be reduced to a minimal role. Thank you.
1: Okay, well, uh, you, our panel members have introduced themselves. Um, could I have the first question, please? Um, first could you give your name first, and then your question? Yeah, it's
4: John Romaney. I'd like to ask a question for all the panelists that are there. Uh, what are all of your thoughts on the increasingly mandatory LGBT and sex education uh, being pushed on younger children by the Scottish Government?
1: Right, now... Who? Would you like to be first, Stephen, to answer this one?
2: Um, yes, and in, in general, I would f- f- feel that it's... Uh, inappropriate to, to, to put such a, uh, a one-sided and arguably mistaken view, on, on particularly in young children. I find, I find it kind of abusive and worrying um, that, that this is being done, um, other than to a minimum extent amongst adolescents. Uh, um, I think there are different issues, I mean the, the gay and uh, um, the t- transgender thing, which I think is much more recent. Um, those are probably issues that should be kept apart, um, but in, in in general I find that it's a worry, although have uh, involvement in the Scottish education system, um, we do have a member uh, who is, and, and Richard's uh, obviously to a greater extent, so, so I'm kind of sympathetic to the Scottish Family Party on that issue.
1: Anthony would you like to
0: Well this seems to be a program that is led by the state that considers itself to be progressive and appealing to certain tendencies that are um, current in society. People have a right to, two gays have a right to get married, someone has a right to change their gender if that's what they choose to do, but parents aren't given the option. And how to educate their, sis, their children, and there's too much centralisation in the imposition of the education policy by the state that's ruling this out universally because they think that that's the best way, or claim to think that that's the best way to educate children. So I think the libertarian position would be get it back to the local level, let people make decisions on what should be taught in their schools
3: okay richard yeah i think there's different aspects the sex education leaving aside the lgbt the sex education is just bad advice in lots of ways it's not the advice that's most likely to lead young people into healthy relationships healthy stable family life in the future so that's really important um and that's something we're we're trying to emphasize because that's a message that appeals very widely the lgbt things can be more controversial but but there are not many parents i think we send their kids to school thinking i'm really glad that the teacher is going to be telling them you know that porn's great and it's a really good thing go ahead that's just fine and that's a total disconnect between the uh, the education leaders and parents so i think that's something we're seeking to uh, exploit the lgbt thing uh, I, think, I think the same question applies is this advice that's going to be helpful to people at the stage it is delivered i think there's good reason to think it isn't the best advice uh, but the government's approach with a new lgbt inclusive education is to include this content in every subject at every stage from nursery all the way through school. So they're deliberately doing that to take away any chance of opting out. The only way to opt out of it is to keep your kids at home and to, to school them at home. So again, I think that's very intrusive, it's unnecessary. It's the education system being hijacked by activists, basically. And I, I sometimes imagine what must it be like being one of these activists where the government comes to you and says, right, what, what, what do you want us to do next? And you tell them they go and do it. Then a few months later, they come and say to you again, right, what do you want us to do next? And th- then they, they give money to your organization. It's a totally different world than our experience. Uh, the, the trans thing is very concerning. Again, it's just bad advice. It's a dangerous message that's been delivered to children. So I say it's a child protection issue. We need to protect children from the bad messages that adults are delivering to them. And I, I think that a majority of parents would not be happy with it. Most of them don't know, they don't realise because the schools don't communicate, but if parents could see the entire curriculum of what their kids were taught, there would be outcry and they wouldn't get away with it. So we're trying to let people know.
1: Right. Uh, Thank you. Um, Um, Neil Burns, Glasgow. Uh, Is the panel aware of a video that went viral of a boy in Aberdeenshire school who got expelled for saying there's two genders? And uh, what do you think, especially libertarians, what do you think of uh, people being told these
0: Um, it sounds like an absolutely outrageous case to me Uh, we've seen an increase in this sort of thing Um, Tom Laird, the leader of the Scottish Libertarian Party and I do a show, the Scottish Liberty Podcast and we covered a story in which someone was even fired from ASDA because of a tweet that he left when he wasn't in work saying uh, of of a uh, of a comedian saying that some sketch about re, um, about religion, uh, there there's, uh, there's seems Connolly. to be a, sorry, it's just, it was oh, Billy Connolly. Connolly, there's this um, creeping, to use the colloquial term, social justice warriorism, which is not just um, a matter of public choice, but it seems to be creeping into our institutions and sort of being forced as the only acceptable line, and anyone who dares even voice a concern about it, never mind a radically divergent opinion, is basically being castigated and um, treated like a pariah with no with no further discussion. So it is a worrying social trend, and uh, yeah, I'm concerned about it as well.
3: Yeah, uh, I think the issue with Murray and. In- up in Aberdeenshire was completely outrageous that's the one time something got filmed i mean that's obviously the tip of the iceberg and this sort of thing we hear stories this sort of thing happening time and time again uh just a bit of inside information on that you know he was expelled from the school ultimately allegedly for filming his teacher against school rules you don't get expelled for filming your teacher without their consent that's that's not the real reason they expelled him but apparently the decision to expel him was taken from the top at Education Scotland. So that was right from the Government Education Department, basically, made the decision that he should be kicked out of his school uh, for doing that. So it, it is an outrage. And then we need to, to fight back against it. With the family party, if I speak to people and say, you know, I think you'd be a really good candidate for the family party, what do you think? Probably two out of three people will have a reason why there'd be quite a high cost to pay if they were to do that. It's their job, it's the partner's job, it's the course they're doing. It's the organization they volunteer for. It's the job they might want to do next time or whatever. So the government sort of got its grip on so many aspects of life.
2: Well, just briefly, I think the family is a kind of social good and therefore there is a public interest and it's not merely a, um, a matter of individual choice, as the libertarians might say. Um, and I think um, gender roles are, are a natural part of that. But I think in addition, there should be room for sort of subcultures of gay and all this sort of thing. Um, so uh, but but I think they're kind of subcultures rather than central to a culture.
1: OK. Um, could I have another? Uh, could we have another question, please? OK. Yeah,
5: this is more for the
1: four-person. Well, Okay. Could you give uh, give Sorry, me your I'm, name?
5: Uh, I'm Ewan Um Basically, um, you mentioned at sort of near the end of your sort of introduction that you were keen for maybe for Britain to have like a specific agenda or maybe policy package from Scotland. I came to sort of where I am from. I suspect a similar place to you. I was quite involved with the SNP pretty much up until the twenty fifteen general election. Mm-hmm. And I guess I kind of became red pilled, as you might say, as they say on the internet. Mm. Um, um, but I do realise that a lot of, I know a lot of people my age who I think might be prepared to jump to sort of a similar sort of politics to me, but are sometimes put off by
3: sort of the kind of London centric politics of a lot of British parties and I was wondering if there was, when you mentioned sort of a Scottish-specific thing for For Britain, would you, what sort of things would be on the agenda?
2: Well, the problem I think is, is, is resources to, to develop it, but certainly we're, we're interested in it. I mean, I think Anne-Marie's concept of a constitution, which is quite good on, but she seems to have the idea of it as um, a, a document that, that gets voted on and, and therefore acquires some kind of authority. But I think um, possibly we could broaden the idea of a constitution to to be more um, what it's like. Um, a political constitution is like the constitution of a human body. It, it's of uh, um, so, uh, for for example, what one would learn about uh, about the body from what it does, and one would learn about a, a political community from from. Uh, from its history essentially. So a part of the, the Scottish constitution would be the declaration of our growth that we're celebrating the 700th anniversary of. Um, part of it would be the works of George Buchanan. Um, part of it would be the works of Andrew Fletcher. So um, there would be a way of embodying that in documentary form uh, and, and embodying it in history and kind of making that part part of the foundational documents and part of the uh, part of the the political practice of the of the party as it grows though as I say we don't have the resources for this at the moment but uh, Anne-Marie is visiting Scotland within the next few weeks so uh, there's at least an opportunity for discussion there.
1: Okay right hopefully you've got a question for all all three members of the panel sorry
3: Uh,
0: well well, do you want to uh, I just want to mention that I think a constitution is an as a good idea. Uh, the, the role of a constitution is to protect the people from the government. When you enter mm-hmm. into a contract, the stake should be clearly defined on both sides. It says what you're entitled to and what the other party is entitled to. We're meant to be engaged in a social contract with the government, but we have no idea what our rights are and what our responsibilities are, and we certainly don't know what the inviolable responsibilities of the government are. So how do we know when the government has breached the social contract if we don't have a constitution?
3: Okay, I was just going to say in terms of Scottish focus, I think of the Scottish Family Party, we are purely Scottish, so our analysis of Scottish politics i think is, is quite deep and in some areas i think it, it seems like we've we've got fuller policies than the mainstream scottish parties have got we have got a policy booklet at the back if you want to pick one up on the way out that's fine but you can see we've we've very much got a, a focus on Scotland and scottish specific policies
1: right sure. uh the gentleman with a magnificent black and green star <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll and, come to the other gentleman afterwards. Okay.
4: Uh, Tom Lehrer, uh, considering the war on drugs has been raging now for over 50 years and we seem to be no further forward. In fact, drugs are plentiful and very cheap. There's nobody in this room tonight. They didn't want to, couldn't get any drug of choice that they wanted. What do the panel feel? Everyone should be, the, should be the step forward. Very costly uh,
1: war on drugs. Okay, Richard, do you want to go first on this one?
3: Yeah, I would go along with the view that this, this war on drugs hasn't been fought, really, because there's been a very softly, softly approach from the police in Britain, including in Scotland, for, for a long time. You say the drugs are freely available, you could go out and get them now. If the police were seriously trying to, to stop that, that wouldn't be the case. The fact that they are so freely available indicates that there's not really an effort to contain it. And think with drugs, sometimes the simple principle of deterrence is that if you attach a punishment to an action, then people are going to take that into account in their decision making and they're going to be less likely to take that action. And when it comes to, to drug abuse and drug dealing, I see that's, that's what we want to do. We want to deter people going down that road. Because I think drugs can't be safe. They can't be a good, good thing in society, no matter what medium they come through, no matter whether it's legal or not, it's going to destroy lives. Uh, young people's lives are going to be blighted, families, etc, etc. So they're going to do a huge amount of damage in proportion to the amount of use. And I think criminalisation and vigorous policing of it is the route to minimising use. I think and if you look at, at countries where they've liberalised, again, I think the picture isn't always as rosy as uh, advocates like to make out. I mean, in the Netherlands, for example, they're seeing cannabis as a serious problem now. And they're tightening up in lots of ways, on it. Whereas over here, people tend to think, oh, you know, that's, that's the the Dutch utopia where they're very enlightened and they're on top of these things. And it's not a problem because they're so so liberally minded. But I, I don't think it's that simple. So, so, that's sorry, my take. So
4: just to check, so you, your position is more money spent and more more laws more more stringently
3: sort of enforced. Are the law more stringently enforced. Yes. Yeah.
2: Um, Stephen. Well I think it needs to be evidence driven and I think the principle would be when the drugs affect other people um, uh, that's a justification for for the authorities to step in. Um, To give an example, cannabis uh, it's a a contrast with alcohol because alcohol is kind of a simple carbohydrate kind of substance and the liver breaks it down overnight and you're kind of good to go again. Whereas something like um, cannabis, the, the body is less able to deal with it. Uh, so it kind of lays down in your fat cells. And then when the fat gets burned off, you get these sort of after-effect things. Um, if you're driving a car, that, that's obviously a danger to other people. Uh, I think there are other, other, other problems of psychotic and brain development things. So uh, I think there is in principle a case for the, for the state to step in, um, but it essentially has to be evidence driven. Um, so I'm kind of open open to evidence.
1: Anthony, I, I take it your view is slightly different.
0: Yeah, I, I don't approve of people taking drugs. But fundamentally, the cost of the drug war go far beyond the mere money spent on policing it. And um, you're so, in some cases, separating a father from a family to put them in jail, they might turn out of jail worse than they came in. They might take notes from someone worse, um, a worse or more hardened criminal. Criminal behaviour on drugs should be policed against. But fundamentally, an individual has the right to imbibe whatever substances they want, provided they don't cause harm or loss to others. When they do so, and that is a fundamental individual right, Due to this illegalization of drugs, we've lost out on 60 or 70 years, maybe more, of research on drugs and how to make them safer, how to uh, reduce the side effects. Um, Not only that, but the clinical use of some of those drugs. For example, there's trials with MDMA on helping in trauma therapy and other things. All of that's been lost to this war on drugs because we've not been looking at the issue correctly. When we talk about deterrence, if someone's, for example, a heroin addict, clearly their impulse control is already compromised because they're willing to risk an overdose. They're willing to risk losing their lives, alienating their family members. So if they don't have the impulse control to be deterred by those possible consequences. What makes one think that they've got the impulse control to be deterred by a prison sentence? I don't think we're looking at the um, issue rightly. Uh, There is an individual rights issue here which is at stake, but also I think um, a war on drugs has done an immense amount of damage in other ways, been costly, and I'm also not willing to see (laughs) SWAT teams go into flats and shoot drug dealers dead with the attendant effects of that on the community and everyone in the area being affected by that as well, which would be necessary to put in the sort of draconian authoritarian measures that the family party seems to advocate. we
3: have another round on that? Um, we may
1: well come. We may well come back to that. Okay. Yeah, this is a question where I'd have loved to have been one of the panel members, <coughs> so I could have sh- ripped into people. But uh, yes.
4: Yeah, my name is uh, Frank Russo, and I would just like to thank I'm the panel for uh, being here today. It's kind of relates to the question on drug you know talk. Uh, most of the libertarian chat. I'm sorry, I forgot your. Anthony. Anthony. Yeah. Do not think that libertarianism is generally a general idea, idea just because. I mean. In, in theory, I think it holds up well, but I say that because when it's based on mostly John Locke's uh, ideas, but he wrote this. Well, he came up with a philosophy when England was largely uh, a homogenous state, and there was no <coughs> multicultural aspects to it. So if we tell, and it seems to be mostly Europeans are concerned who seem to like the idea of libertarianism. I mean, it's not just me saying, You can just look at the states, for example, where because. Uh, European uh, um, people of that and, and Britain are told too well, just do, just do libertarian in a small state, whereas you get people from different cultures that know that in a group they're stronger, and because people in the States get I and mean, here are on their own essentially, they will turn to drugs, lead to suicide. This is what's happening at the moment. I <coughs> think it's an outdated idea that it could only work, for okay. example, being in Japan or Poland.
1: Right. Okay, mm-hmm. okay Anthony. Antony- Thank you. Hang on. Well, I'm
4: not about-
1: right. Yeah. Okay, I think we've got I'm a good, we got a good question. Is libertarianism and li- are libertarian ideas outdated? Anthony.
0: Uh, on the contrary, i th- say that libertarian <laughs> ideas have never been so vibrant as they are today. Yes, we do have intellectual ancestors like John Locke and Adam Smith, yeah. but their ideas have been refined by philosophers who've improved them and made them more consistent and really the philosophy only came, finally came together maybe in the fifties. So I'd say it's more relevant than ever, a greater percentage of people are now libertarians. Uh, You mentioned tangentially that people realise that they're in a group they're stronger. I have no objection to that. Libertarians have no objection to that. But the individual is the basis upon which groups are formed. And as individuals, we can come together and form groups based on shared values, or whatever we think benefits us to create a company, to create a charity, to create organisations. And, 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 so libertarians don't deny that, that as groups, we can advocate for our um, issues more effectively, certainly not.
3: Okay, uh, Richard. Yeah, I think with libertarianism, I think it's interesting. There's never, correct me if I'm wrong. There's never really been put into practice in a, in, a, in any sort of serious manner. I think part of the reason for that is it's very theoretical. It's got an intellectual appeal, but when it meets the practicalities and complexities of actually running a country, I think it's it's quite a different thing. Um, I think it's sort of based on a, maybe a simplistic view of human nature. Treats people as quite um, one-dimensional, singly motivated uh, individuals, whereas actually, as has been mentioned, people form into groups. People's relationships and other units are, are very, very important. I think in order to to create a successful society, then these group relationships need to be managed as well. And, and I'm not against a spot of paternalism, as well. Like, for example, when the government says I have to wear my seatbelt, I'm quite glad it does that because if it didn't say that, I might not bother. So, I think the government does me a favour by, by making me do that. So, a spot of paternalism is okay. So, I'd be interested to hear your line on seatbelts and to get <laughs> some, <laughs> some point. Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: you would need a SWAT team to get my youngest to eat his greens. <laughs> just a quick comment on the It's If
5: you look at it, your, your position is almost identical to another communists, because essentially you take a Lusthanian view of human nature you think we're angelic, you yeah. know, and the devices, will all behave very well. Yet we're in a very complex society. And of course the problem with that
1: is that now we depend on the technology, which is, you know, developed by a handful of, you know... Now, before, an, uh, before, Anthony, uh, before Anthony responds, it's Stephen's turn. Yeah,
2: okay. I don't know if I've got a mobile phone going. Right.
1: Uh, will someone reach for the hammer, please? <laughs>
2: Okay, Anthony. Stephen. Um, Stephen, sorry, (laughs) I'm going mad, clearly. Well, I I would come at it with with this kind of richer set of concepts in terms of political philosophy. And if one thinks of a political work, not like John Locke, but like Hegel's uh, philosophy of rights, I mean, you do have, I think, essentially, the level of property and natural law, which is what libertarians try and construct society out of. But then you kind of move on to other areas, um, in particular the family which has a natural structure and then you look b- beyond that you have structures of civil society which tends to be in trades and the professions. and then beyond that you, you have this, the state um, which, which families and individuals and property holders will, will make demands of in terms of security. Um, so for example, you have the military, you have the civil service, um, you have the judiciary, you have the government uh, and all the, all these institutions. So uh, I think there's more um, uh, than libertarianism or even an exclusive focus on the family um, requires to be taken uh, into account, even in terms of one individual state. And then um, to to go on with the Hegelian theme, I think there are other things that impinge on an individual state, I mean, particularly religion, which we haven't. Haven't discussed uh, and sort of uh, aesthetic issues in terms of ideas of the good life from, from novels and from general culture um, and such like. So um, I, I'm not sure where, where this came from, uh, but but, but I, I, th- I think we need a richer set of ideas to to to, to, uh, to engage in politics from the standpoint of, of a statesman or. Or even a churchman. Uh, so I, I would I would oppose uh, libertarianism on those kind Anthony, of grounds. Um
1: can I uh, can I maybe sort of uh, put something in which is. uh, I keep asking myself, what type of libertarian are you? I mean, who are you most influ— who are you and your uh, friends in the Scottish Libertarian Party most influenced by? Are you followers of Ayn Rand or or do you lean more towards the uh, the sort of Austrian school of economics, Hayek and Mises?
0: We're quite ecumenical, but I'd say we're probably um, quite Austrian. Uh, I don't think many anarcho-communists would get on with us. We are uh, strident advocates of free market capitalism, but we also believe in a capitalism that's uh, even playing field. We don't think the government should be in bed with big business, um, giving special rights to the the big boys as they do. Um, It's true that um, there's never been a pure libertarian society. but. At one time, there was never a society that didn't own slaves. That's really neither here and there. We have got gradations of libertarian societies. And wherever we look, the more economically free a society is, the more prosperous it seems to be. So we have serious disputes with the socialists um, on on points of economics. As to the point on human nature, it's really, it's it's kind of a, a To say that we believe that humans are angelic is completely at odds with the the philosophy. Um, We acknowledge that humans are corruptible. That's why we don't want humans to have uh, control over the machinations of the state to fight their wars abroad and to bribe people into dependency with the welfare state and do all sorts of uh, nefarious things. As an individual, we can act on our own. We can trade with other individuals. We can act in the spirit of friendship. And if we're malevolent, the consequences of our malevolence are um, limited to a small number of people. But with the power of the state, that's not necessarily the case. So we don't think that people are angelic in human nature. And uh, as, as a, a, on the point in the family, if as you say it's a natural structure and um, i am of that belief myself and um, then people will default to that natural structure if the state will just stop trying to socially engineer them otherwise which is why we want to limit the influence of the state and in our institutions thank you okay
2: yep
1: oh. Well, I, I think uh, I mean, uh, as uh, as Stephen, if you like, was the uh, was the, the intended victim of the question. He got a sort of uh, extra shot on that one. Um, okay, other Stephen, you have a question. Alexander, no, uh, my question is: given that uh, across Europe and in the UK, England as well, um, immigration has become a major concern and caused a lot of social strife, with SNP now moving to increase immigration into Scotland uh, where do you stand on those matters? Okay would you like to start then?
2: Yes I think that we would probably distinguish um, immigration from the Anglosphere from immigration from less compatible cultures. Um, I think what the SNP is doing is kind of accepting the the status quo of a low birth rate uh, and using immigration to uh, Um, to to compensate which has the the effect of creating a multicultural society that people don't necessarily want and don't necessarily um, understand what the consequences would be so it seems more sensible to uh, 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 maybe deferring here to to encourage family life a bit more and and, uh, restore the married person's tax allowance and various other measures to to have a um, a more, sort of, uh, stable, um, population. Okay, right.
0: Well, uh, um, in recent, yeah, in recent years, libertarians have been quite split on the issue of immigration. The position of the party is that migrant workers should be allowed to cross borders, just the same way as capitalists can go to whatever country they want. In order to take advantage of lower wages, migrant workers should be able to cross borders to take advantage of higher wages. I would like to see immigration from English-speaking countries like America, Canada and Australia um, liberalised. I think there, we, we do worry about um, that as Milton Friedman once said, you can't have open borders and a generous welfare state as that does bias the, um, the scales and would encourage people to come and cross borders for the wrong reasons. It's bribing them or encouraging them to come to, in order to take advantage of welfare, free schools, free healthcare. And there are concerns about that even within our party. But for the time being, we do take the open borders position. Okay,
3: okay, Richard. Yeah, I would say there are some benefits from immigration. I think sometimes they're overplayed by proponents of it, but there are some benefits and also some potential problems as well. Um, so it depends on the amount and the nature of it. I think they're the, the really important question. It's not about a headline figure. It, it's uh, some, there's a lot of other relevant factors as well. Uh, Stephen mentioned cultural distance. I think that's a very significant factor, very definitely. What tends to happen with immigration? If you say you've got a little town, the, the first couple who move there from a new country, then they integrate completely. They've got to learn the language. And people quite like having someone a bit different, brightens the place up, and, and that, that's, quite, that's quite good. Everything's perfect. But if then uh, you know, a relative comes over and joins them, so that's still great, but maybe you know, there might be a slightly less integration. Uh, And then more people are thinking, right, shall we go over and move to that town? Well, they'll think, well, yeah, we'd already know people there. There'll already be people who speak our language. And people will start then moving to a country without really the intention of of integrating. So if you allow large communities, so isolated communities to grow, immigration into them will accelerate and accelerate because the barrier, the cultural barrier seems to be very low. And I think that's what's happened in some areas of England. And I think that creates problems, it creates tensions. And I think if Scotland could avoid those sort of issues in the future, then that would be a a wise move. And so I think assimilation is really important. And I think at the moment, sort of a bit of a pause to have a few decades to let things settle down and to allow assimilation and integration to take its course. This is not a fast process. This is a multi-generational process in many cases. So that needs to be allowed to happen. And just to echo what Stephen said about, about birth rates, okay, the assumption is, hear Nicola Sturgeon talking, the only way to deal with a, a falling population is, is mass immigration. No consideration of abortion, which currently, currently more than bridges the gap between the number of births and deaths in Scotland, and encouraging family size, which government policy could definitely do.
1: OK, thank you. Could we, ha- could we have another question, please? Okay, this time though, uh, if you could give us your name, sir.
5: Okay, okay. my name is uh, um, Erin yeah, Um I guess I've got a rather odd political background because I've probably been uh, back in the day more involved let's say, the left uh, um anti war protests and things like that. It's only recently that I began to feel like it was very rapid with cultural changes, the happening. I think that's as Trying to say the sort of the previous briefs of um, interjection um, related to to technological changes, and so I think a lot of the changes we're seeing around, if you like, mass migration, that's one issue. uh, The role of the family, that's another issue. Okay, they're all related to technological changes, and we're seeing more and more power invested in, if you like, big sort of multinationals. And the state, and, and often it's not just our local nation state. Uh, and so, one big issue is, you know, the future of the nation state, because there are certainly intellectuals, um, in many, like, sort of international institutions who really see the nation state as a thing of the past. And you know, I don't. My brother, for example, was uh, an advisor to the of there back in the the sort of, you know, um, <laughs> and just in
4: passing and conversation, you know, we were talking about immigration and at
5: that stage my views on it were beginning to change because, you know, I was just saying, you know, it has to be regulated, it has to be managed and you're not managing it, okay? And that was just over oh, the issue was the whether they should you know, let polls come in nine seven or nine years but they had to extend you know, um freedom movement to the eastern european countries over that and he says "Well, I think nation states of the past mm.
1: so, so perhaps and that was really an insight
5: into where they're coming from now what the basic question is there's a huge void in scottish politics basically the only issue the main parties really disagree on is the constitutional issue if you look at you know the SNP, labor even the conservatives i mean really, they don't really disagree on the fundamentals, but okay. the problem, if I look at, let's say, the Scottish Neil, family... Neil,
1: can I take from you two questions, maybe? The first one, which is, you mentioned the question of whether the nation-state <coughs> is a thing of the past. That in itself makes an excellent question. Right. And the second question that's well, coming of what you're saying it's, it's is, really, is there a void in really, Scottish politics?
5: Because the Scottish family Party seems to be more focused on the issue of family, and I think we need if you like, a party, an opposition, if you like, in, in Scotland, that has, if you like, a clear vision of an alternative, you know, a clear vision of an alternative, that goes beyond just looking at an aspect of the family, which is one aspect. Um, so,
1: so perhaps the second question would be, how do you fill the void? Into, you perceive as a void?
5: A what, you know, for example, I've seen Richard saying is his videos, which I would agree with 100% about the family being you know, essential to our society. And uh, I think the moves, basically, against the family are technocratic. You know, they're basically placing more power in states, and that it enables more surveillance. Okay, because we, the family, right? From the state,
1: okay, I'm going to cut you off because you've now you've now getting to the point where yo, I've got th- at least three questions out of okay, out so of you. Okay. Do you think the na- the nation state is a thing of the past, Richard?
3: Definitely not. Uh, I think people's, a lot of this is emotional and subjective. Uh, people's subjective allegiance, sense of community, sense of, uh, sort of harmony and, and responsibility to other people is to the nation state. Now, in, in Scotland, if, if only that were a simple issue, then I would be a straightforward patriot. But in Scotland, it's quite difficult to be a straightforward patriot because there's, the vision of nationhood is divided. It, it's splintered. In Scotland, so that makes it quite difficult. Quite difficult. So, if Scotland became an independent nation, then on the first day after that, I would be a patriotic Scot, and I'd be arguing for a strong Scottish national identity and unity of, of the nation. Uh, in the meantime, I'm I, uh, a Unionist, so I prefer that to to be as it is. as a patriotism for the current arrangement. As the Family Party, we decided that if, if you get into this issue then we'd be slicing our support, potential support in half. And we thought we can't afford to do that. If you, if you look at the social conservative vote, if you like, if you slice that in half, there's no MSPs on the horizon. So the only way to get that social conservative voice in is if people with their second vote are willing to put aside these other issues and think it's important to have these <coughs> things represented. Because the Scottish Family Party, we're not claiming to have like, the full package to run the country. Like if we got ele- won the election and we're suddenly in the government, we'd be thinking, you know, we've got no policies on loads of things. What do we do? But we think that then our mission is to put in a different voice into the parliament, which would influence uh, the whole debate in the nation. It would be very important. The main thing I'll say that there with Scottish nationalism and unionism, it is ultimately just a subjective thing. Whether you're a Scottish nationalist or unionist is determined almost exclusively by your upbringing and experiences that have led you to that subjective uh, loyalty at that point. So I think arguing about it in the political realm is a bit futile, which is why we want to move things on from it.
2: Okay, Stephen. Well, no, I I think the the question is, um, began talking about technology, but I I think politicians um, of the previous, and I think the elected politicians of the current generation, they seem to operate with a kind of blank slate View of human nature, which I think is at odds with, uh, uh, with the facts of the matter. If you look at Frank Salter's work on ethnogenetic interests, um, there are kind of negative effects of having people from different ethnic groups competing for resources within within the same area. There tends to be a, a breakdown of, of, of social trust. Um, another thing is because people are different, you tend to get stratified societies uh, and this kind of resentment from. from an ethnic underclass, and that tends to lead to uh, um, to sort of uh, ideologies that that, that uh, uh, justify that kind of resentment. So it's not a happy situation. So I'd be against the the open borders thing um, uh, f- f- for that for that reason. Um, I think all all of the parties around the table have some way to go. Um, I mean, I think all of us have have some electoral experience. Um, uh, Richard and uh, Lochaber, Harbour Um, for Britain stood in the Leith Walk by election, um, as did the Scottish Libertarians. Um, Certainly, I I think we have things to learn in in, in terms of uh, practical politicking. Um, Certainly, we need to do more than sort of leafleting. Uh, There needs to be more community involvement, I, I, I would suspect. Um, to to bump up our our vote, Um, but people kind of know we exist, but but, uh, there's certainly a long way to go to, to establish an alternative party.
0: Okay. Thank you. Well I don't think the nation state is going anywhere anytime soon, but I think the question, like the question in immigration, points at a more important point, which is that we want to live in a cohesive society. And I think it really gets right to the heart of the problem and why libertarianism is necessary. Because if you look at what's basically happening, as you said, group identities are subjective. Some people here feel like um, proud Scots. Others feel more, they identify more with Britishness. But what we have is a war of all against all where everyone is trying to force their way of life by means of the state on everyone else. And that's at the heart of why libertarianism is needed, really, what we're saying is, you have your way of life, we have our way of life, and as long as we respect each other's rights, we each have our own choice. In our own party, we had a debate over whether we should take Richard's position, and we came down on the Scottish nationalist position. if, when you went to vote for Brexit, or you didn't, um, you had the choice to have uh, EU citizenship, and if you didn't take it, then you'd have to wait at the long queue, of the, queue in the airport, we wouldn't have had, seen such a breakdown of social cohesion over these issues, the same way that in America they have over Trump. People hate each other, and they hate each other, because we are not able to say, you have your way of life, we have our way of life. Let's not ram it down each other's throats.
1: Um, I'm uh, Neil. Uh, bef- right, um, Neil. You. I don't think we've really got to grips fully with what you were saying. Perhaps the um, the tech issue. Okay. You were you were talking about large corporations.
5: We know there's been a uh, the government the way uh, uh, the Chinese tech giant they installed five G network in around the UK, especially Scotland for the time. being. and that's going to have huge ramifications. So we're seeing actually big states and big business merge. So basically, if you let's say have a, a libertarian view where you think that you know, uh, we can somehow, <coughs> as individuals, uh, <coughs> Might like can regulate all these big businesses that are you know, controlling our lives in different ways. I mean, most people's lives, many people's lives. I mean, they are literally, you know, they're they're jumping from one institution to another institution. You know, it, okay. it might be Tesco, it might be the institution. It might be you know Google. It might be you know Facebook.
1: Okay. And these are more powerful
5: than states. Shall you know, we?
1: States. Shall we throw to the panel that? Yeah. Right. Um, are are the big corporations more powerful than states? Do you think that something can, stroke, should be done about it? Okay, Anthony, um, do you want to go first? On yeah, this one?
0: well, the thing is the state is the only institution that can forcibly transfer your resources and give it to a corporation. Otherwise, Coca-Cola would be lobbying Microsoft and Microsoft would be lobbying Starbucks. Mm-hmm. So no handouts to big business. Even corporation, even the idea of a corporation is a privilege that the government grants to a company which says that if you're in a corporation and you do something illegal or you cause harm or loss to someone, you're not personally responsible. The corporation gets sued instead of you <coughs> personally. This is just a hand puppet to protect um, the rich and powerful. It's not in the interests of most of us as individuals. So I would say limit the state's role in the economy to a referee. It should not be picking winners and losers, but it should simply be instituting the law to make sure that corporations don't cause harm or loss to citizens. Can I just quickly
5: jump in there? The problem is that now we're seeing regulation in terms of censorship, not just from state actors, and also it comes from state actors, that's bad, you know. But we're actually seeing the big tech giants in the United States, where well, they've got their First Amendment on free speech. Okay, uh, we're seeing organisations like Google and uh, you know Twitter regulating individuals and censoring, censoring, you know, opinions. You no. Know. Good. That's, so why? Yeah. Why are we letting Google, you know, control our lives? Yeah.
0: Google got 650 million in handouts for the US government. Would it have a monopoly otherwise? Mm-hmm. I don't know. The, the, so the, 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 the line between what is the state and what is a corporation has been blurred in these cases. Corporations writing regulations is nothing new. That's why they have lobbyists. The healthcare industry writes regulations on pharmaceuticals. The banking industry rights regulations for the banking sector or people from there do. So we are deeply interested in removing the coercive force, the coercive influence of corporations on the economy, which they can only carry out via the government. If you disallow the government from picking winners and losers, there will be no interests for corporations to lobby in order to impose their will upon the rest of us
3: by force. Okay, Richard. Okay, picking up what Anthony said, he said companies can go about the business as long as they're not causing any harm to anyone. I suggest often the interpretation of that can be quite short term and individualistic. I think there can be harm to a society in lots of different ways. So like a company that sets up selling chocolate, does it harm people? You could argue that it does. So I don't think there's a simple matter of principle that determines how we deal with these issues. It needs to be a pragmatic case-by-case case issue. So you're not forced so, to buy uh, the child. Sorry? Not forced to the- no, buy No, no, I'm not saying anything should be done about them. I'm just saying it meets Anthony's definition of a company that could be seen as causing harm in society. So so I wouldn't take. A, so, say I've got a principle that settles all the issues, but look, case-by-case, case, and there are a lot of areas where I think it's right for the governments to moderate the activities of businesses. On the other hand, I think a free market economy is is the most effective in generating wealth. And and that's a really important thing for a nation. In terms of their influence, I think we're in new territory here with the social media companies exerting huge influence, censorship, etc. I I sometimes wonder why they do it. Is it because they really believe those things or is it because they're trying to keep um, the sort of globalist anti-capitalist off their back? Because these are some of the biggest, most successful American multinational companies in the world, so they should have extinction rebellion smashing their windows. But they'll think, well, we can keep them at bay if we just do enough LGBT feminist. If we just do all the other PC things, maybe they'll let us off with making a fortune as a multinational American corporation. So I think there's a bit of that in it. Um, I think the legal case is currently against YouTube and Google about are they a publisher or are they is it a media company is that the alternative is it a platform a platform yeah Uh, i think that needs to be resolved one way or another because at the moment these companies are so influential and i think their attempts to skew political debate are quite sinister so i think the government needs to step in in order to preserve an open democratic society that's endangered by these hugely influential companies skewing public debate
2: okay Stephen. Briefly, I would say that companies typically act within the law and, and they're weaker than uh, – they lobby – but they're weaker than, uh, than governments and, and are aware of that fact. Um, I think in a way the, the example that's given is more in- interesting or, or supervenes upon the, the general point uh, in terms of the control of the internet that's, that's been uh, um, established since 2016, since Trump's election. and. and we've seen a kind of uh, persipiration of it with the the Chinese having their separate internet now and and, uh, a lot of national censorship creeping in and um, a lot of effort being put into uh, uh, search engine uh, manipulations. Um, So uh, my feeling was when the the internet was was free and uh, available to everyone that that was a much better situation I, f- I found myself learning all sorts of things i, I would possibly find it more difficult to to, to, to learn now so I, I think that's been a that's, that's actually been led by politicians that, politi- uh, it's people like merkel and uh, and so on that, that have taken the initiative to to uh, to stifle google um, so I, uh, certainly I, th- I thought the internet was was much better when it was uh, free and open there were disadvantages in terms of abuse and such like, but there are advantages too. Okay,
1: the, the very patient chap over there.
4: Yeah. And can, can I hear the panel's view on uh, the fact that most demographers uh, project that white Brits will be a minority in this country by 2066. Can I hear each of your take on
1: that and uh, how it affects your, your perspective worldviews, your, your point of view, and uh, please, please stay on the point.
2: Okay, right. Um, Do you fancy starting that one, Stephen? It worries me greatly. I mean, the, the, the meaning of my life, in, in, in a sense, is, is to engage with, with the culture that I inherited, and, and I, it, uh, if it's not to be passed on, it, it kind of destroys the meaning. And I, I think, you know, I, I feel that in a particular sense, and uh, through literature, but. Uh, I think it's a common feeling, so I would uh, uh, not allow that to happen if it can be prevented. I think um, people do tend to project the dem- demography into the future, um, assuming nothing's going to change. Mm. But of course, things can change socially; they can change politically. Um, but but, but it's, uh, it's the job of activists to, to contribute to that and make it happen. Okay, Stephen.
0: I'm Anthony.
2: All right. Sorry, Anthony. (laughs) Right.
0: Okay, Anthony. Yeah, I don't uh, don't know if the party has a position on it. I've not seen the research and I've not seen the counter arguments to it. Personally, I think that our, like, liberal... To an extent, people do come here because they think that it offers a better way of life than wherever they came from, and to the degree that that is because they're, say, migrant workers, rather than that the system that we have incentivizes them to come here, um, that should be successful. I would like to see the system stop incentivizing people um, to come here, because I think we, to a degree, we have to have the faith in our values and our culture that uh, we've shown to be a culture that creates vast amount of wealth and do all that we can as individuals you know as we do with our show educating uh, people on this on these topics and um, what the west has achieved and um, what britain has achieved in terms of advancement in technology creating incredible wealth and things like that and do all we can as individuals to demonstrate that these ideas are Excellent ideas, and that if people come here, we should be encouraging them to know what our ideas have done, how they've created Western civilization. And um, I, I do have a problem with the Um, the the way the education system promotes a view of history that seems to suggest that the government came along and fixed everything, when actually if you look at most of it, it was individuals, it was the free market, it was innovators, entrepreneurs that um, created the fantastic success which we now take for granted.
3: Okay, Richard. I think the really important thing with this issue is we're going to start off accepting where we are. Now, it may be that you're someone who thinks they're really delighted with the amount of immigration over recent decades. It may be someone who thinks there's been far too much, but the fact is, we are where we are. So if people start going down the line of, I don't like there being so many immigrants here, even if they're citizens or whatever, Mm -hmm. what can we do about it? How can we get rid of them? How can we get them to... As soon as you start thinking down those lines, you're falling off the end of the spectrum. It's completely unrealistic. It's never going to happen. It would be completely unfair. To try and make that happen. So then that that's a path that's, that's completely destructive. The, the question was phrased in terms of race. I think people sometimes see race as a proxy for culture. If you've got people of a different race, then they're probably of a different culture. And I think if people see an increasing number of people from other cultures, that would likely go with a weakened sense of rootedness, a weakened sense of national identity. And I think they're, they're rational concerns, and that's perfectly... Uh, perfectly reasonable to have those, but there are concerns that can be addressed through aiming at integration and assimilation. Give it time, and make a conscious effort at it. Like, for example, the way the USA does. I think you can forge a united nation uh, out of that. The problem with framing the issue with, uh, as primarily about race is that, that in a sense, is hopeless because there's no solution to that. Those people are not going to change race. So your only solutions are completely unacceptable, which is why I think by bringing in and in race into politics is is uh, potentially dangerous. But as you see them in terms of culture and assimilation, a united society, etc., then that's things you can work on and you can be optimistic and you, you can you, know, you can restrict immigration in the meantime, but you can work on it and you can have a positive vision of the future, which I think is really the, the only option for us. Yeah.
4: Um,
1: n- the lady in the background. Most immigrants
0: don't.
2: assimilate uh, like to our way to bring their own cultures with them? and don't have to. I think I would, would possibly comment on what R- Richard's just said, that, that he says that it seems to... I'm not sure what he's saying, that it's unrealistic or that there's nothing that can be done about it. But I think the current situation was kind of brought about deliberately, specifically by the 1948 um, Citizenship Act. Um, and it's evolved happily enough for for a first generation I think there's negative effects being seen um, but now now that we're getting almost 70 years past it so I mean it's been brought about deliberately and and I think people have come here and invested in our society and we do have to appreciate that Um, but if it's been brought about deliberately it can be changed deliberately not quickly but the direction uh, over a couple of generations can be put back to to where we want it to be so how would that happen
3: you mean people living here would would move would leave the country or some would but by what means
2: they would want to return there would, there would be a variety of, of, uh,
3: what would, would of you, methods but we'd assume that that's not going to happen but it's not happening at the moment So, without some sort of incentive or well,
0: or oh, so some mean- sort of policy to induce that. Or well, maybe can- stop um, promoting the opposite. If there is a problem with immigrant assimilation, I think it's largely a problem caused by the welfare state. If you pay people to do exactly what they're doing, then they'll continue to do that. And I think it's um, a sad thing in this country if we have ghettoized communities where people of us um, that all came from another country just live together and don't speak English. People are afraid to go there and things like that. But um, not that I'm saying there there ought to be one. There has been no integration policy, but there has been government funding of the opposite of of integration. And I think that um, that's a problem. I'm just back from New York where one of the things I loved about it was how cosmopolitan it was. But even though there was different cultures within New York, they shared a common culture. And I think it shouldn't be controversial to say that I think that's a good vision um, to have for a country or a city or any place where people gather together, that they have their own individuality and their own culture, but they also form a culture together and institutions. Okay, the, the chap over there. Okay. Um, I just have a
4: question for Richard solution would solution not be to incentivize them to well instead of investing and in integrating them, maybe investing in their countries. Because I mean, I spoke I like speaking to people about this and not just different races but from anywhere. And they say they're largely here for the money. If they had enough money to go back or companies to go back, they would go back. They say that the weather's crap, so and that's and that's just one of the problems. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not even Scottish, but I like it here. So I stay and I integrate but some don't. Just look at Malmo Malmo in Sweden is rich. But they say oh it's, we want to go back to Syria, well, not all of them, but a lot say well we mm-hmm. would go back if they money, so they are not their solution to yeah, invest I, in
3: their country. Yeah, I heard of something recently, a, it was a really surprising story. I think it was Denmark is offering to pay refugees to go back. I think it's offering something like twenty it was like twenty thousand euros or something. They're not too and, and the they can, and and can they the can money. change their mind. They can go back, and within a year they can change their mind and go back to Denmark. Mm. So they are offering an incentive. I think when you're dealing with refugees, then I think a country accepting refugees that that's a different matter. When, when the situation when the danger's passed, I think it's reasonable for a country to say you can come and stay for the duration of the danger, but then you know we, we'd like you to go back in. I think that's perfectly reasonable. For people who have settled here and have got citizenship. I think to even suggest that there's an intention to incentivize them leaving the country, I think that that's, not, that's not a moral option, to even suggest that to people who are citizens. Because I think once you've crossed that boundary, you may believe that the nation's made terrible mistakes in the past in allowing so many people to come and become citizens, but then once they are, you've got to treat them fairly and, and find a way forward rather than go back to that. That's, that's my view very mm. strongly. But the other thing with that, if you imagine that you were of a, let, let's say you're a Pakistani say, and the government offers an incentive for anyone of Pakistani ancestry to go back to Pakistan, the message delivered inevitably is, you know, we'd be quite keen to get rid of you.
5: Hmm.
3: So if, if you wouldn't mind considering it, it's inevitable. it can't be avoided that you're delivering that message. And if you want assimilation and harmony, I don't think that's the way, the way to get it.
1: Um, Stephen. Hopefully not on immigration. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I've got a different question for you. Good. Um, given that areas in the country are getting uh, quite badly affected by crime, and uh, currently the police only deal with, I think, seven percent of crimes, uh, how would you, how would you foresee an improvement in the law enforcement in the country? <clears throat>
3: Okay, well, uh, Richard, I think you go first this time. Yeah, I mean, crime in general, a lot of it is linked to family breakdown. The statistics like, for example, the number of male prisoners who were brought up in a fatherless home. I and mean, there's various statistics, but it's like well over half. I mean, it's, it's ludicrously overrepresented. So that's an area where I think it'd have a huge impact at minimal cost. If you could promote family stability, then the knock-on effects would be huge, <coughs> potentially. I think through education at the moment, uh, young people are not being taught the self-discipline that they need so when they're in situations where they encounter authority figures or whatever or, or they hear what the rule is they're more likely to think I oh, will stuff it I'm going to do it in any case or why should I do what you say why should I follow that law so, so I think we're, we're priming generations who are more likely uh, to get into trouble with the law drugs were mentioned earlier on that's a big factor in crime we've got a different solutions to it but I think are trying to tackle that one way or another I think alcohol as well I think, I heard the statistics, something like 60% of prisoners uh, were under the influence of alcohol when they committed their crime. So that's a pretty huge factor as well. So getting over a message of responsibility with alcohol, I think is very important as well. And I think it needs a bit of cultural leadership there. Um, basically to say that, you know, being drunk is not okay, because these are the things it leads to. This is the way it endangers other people. So this is not something that's not socially acceptable anymore. In terms of the police, the police has politicised social workers in uniform, as, as I say, calls them. So they're getting the police back to doing their job and being a police force with authority and the manpower, the equipment, and, and the authority to do their job. Because at the moment, I'm sure as a policeman you're terrified that you know, someone's going to complain about you or they're going to sue you or whatever, you're probably feeling like you're on tiptoes all the time. So that, that needs to change, it needs to be the criminals who are feeling like. You know, they have to be on tiptoes when they encounter the policemen so I want to shift the balance of power back to the police for
2: that. okay Stephen oh, I would mostly second that I mean one thing we've observed is um, police activity concerning the internet which we, we, so-called hate crimes we, we wouldn't advocate prioritizing that we would uh, uh, want more real, real world stuff. I think there are general cult- cultural factors that the religion uh, that uh, Richard said, But one would be the, uh, the decline of religion. I, th- I think when one has a domestic incidents, uh, the police get called now, but I mean, in previous generations, it would be a priest, it would be a minister who, who, who would possibly settle things better by telling people, reminding people of why they got married in the first place and, and this sort of thing. Um, but certainly there are a variety of cultural factors and, and, and um, uh, maybe additional resources would, would, would be appropriate.
0: Thank okay, you. Anthony. So, the, yeah, there's two issues here um, alluded to are the sociological contexts. And those are things that should be dealt with in terms of enforcement. <clears throat> I, I I believe last time I looked at the figures, the crime rates have been going down for quite a considerable amount of time, at least violent crimes. Yeah, the the police shouldn't be focused on online hate crimes or uh, prosecuting the drug war. Um, But when you um, speak about the relationship of the individual to an authority figure. Um, All authority should be earned. And if it's true that what you're saying is that the police are only dealing with 7% of crimes, then that's a serious breach of the social contract. We've, if the state has one role, it's to prosecute and protect us from criminals. Surely that's the primary role of the state. So something needs to be done about the attitude of the state towards what its role in our life says and that it should get its priorities straight and be dealing with and prosecuting criminals and also looking into deterrence and what that would entail, what are the sociological factors that are uh, creating crime so that it can be deterred, because it's better to stop it from happening in the first place than to have to spend massive amounts of resources chasing up antisocial people. Okay, the, the gentleman at the front.
1: I think I've got a
4: question. I'm Gary Pratt. Uh, how would the what <coughs> would the panel's views be on the?
1: grooming gang scandals that have been going on around Britain where the police have literally stood by and allowed <coughs> young British girls, some really young, to be raped and the only reason they didn't step in was because they were accused of, they, they were wired out of being called racist. Okay, Anthony, do you want to take up the issue
0: of grooming gang s- scandals yeah, uh, and the uh, behaviour of the state? It's outrageous. If someone cre- commits a crime, it's equality b- by the law, they should be prosecuted. It doesn't matter if they're a politician or an immigrant. Um, that's That should be the primary function of the state. I don't know if this is <coughs> some kind of thing to, uh, you know, to ferment... Um, division in society by getting the nationalists oh my god we've got these immigrants coming here and being allowed to rape people and on then on the other hand the left being crazy about racism and things like that but it definitely smells funny and uh, yeah definitely anyone who commits a rape should be prosecuted so what do you mean it smells funny i'm not what, what i just mean is some uh, i don't want to go into conspiracy theory territory but the state stands to gain from social problems because the more social problems there are, the more we turn to the state as our protector so whether it's poverty have they not made enough social problems already they certainly have they, and I, i'm not really sure that um, i'm not really sure that gaining access to the the ring from the ring of power from the lord of the rings is uh going to corrupt the wearer or if uh, or if you'll be able to wield that power we, we need the power but just it's us who has who has to have the power
3: um <coughs> but i fear that i stray off topic so okay that's richard right. yeah i think it's completely outrageous that the police didn't act as they should have done. That just shows how far gone the police are in some cases. They are so stuffed full of equality and diversity training that they can't state the obvious and just do the, perform the most basic functions uh, of their job. Um, so that's obviously outrageous that happened. I would hope that that lesson has been learned once and for all. You would hope that that's happened. In terms of, of what was going on, I mean, this was mainly of so Pakistani Muslims, I don't know how devout Muslims there were, So I think that's something that needs looking at, and that needs investigating to try and understand why that happened. Why was that mindset there among those people? I don't know if that's a cultural thing from Pakistan, I don't know if it's some interpretation of Islam, I I have no idea. But I think the British government needs to be finding out. And that needs to be a top priority. And as far as I can tell, there doesn't seem to be a particularly great effort being made to do that. I don't know if there's some sort of inquiry going on, but I'd say there needs to be. until someone can explain to me why it has been, people from this particular demographic, I will think, well, this should be on the case, still trying to find out why that's happening. Because until you identified the, the thinking behind that, whatever influence it is that's led to that, then you can't try and tackle it. So then we've got to get to the, to the bottom of it. On the other hand, the one thing I would say, for some people, if your agenda is very much sort of anti-Islam, for various reasons, I think they can have, there's various rational concerns about Islam. But some people whose agenda is very much anti-Islam, then this is ammunition for them. And they bring it up again and again and again, claiming it's out of um, concern for the victims. Whereas if it was a different demographic involved, they wouldn't be concerned with the issue at all. So I think if, if that's the case, I think there's something going a bit wrong there as well. But yeah, we certainly need to get to the bottom of, of why it's happened to try and tackle the attitudes but
2: let's read. Okay Stephen. Well I think one particular thing is uh, a lot of us thought it was dealt with when the J report came out which was two two or more years ago but we've seen it breaking out again in in Manchester so it seems to be a more perhaps maybe more of a a systemic problem that that, uh, has been recognised thus far. Certainly, I think there are cultural things and it's kind of, there's, as far as one can tell, there's this kind of borderline of, of race and, 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 and people will tend to be less thoughtful, careful about members of an ethnic outgroup than, than of their own group. Um, as, as has been mentioned, maybe, maybe there is a, a problem with, with Islam, which is, is, is an ideology that, that can be... Um, uh, utilized to uh, to mobilize energies against an outgroup um, I mean, there are aspects of the hadith and the, the Quran that, that would justify that um, but i think probably dislike of, of uh, an ethnic outgroup which which is a kind of human universal um, is, is also something that's at work uh, certainly it ought to be prioritized and we should keep on it Okay.
1: I, uh, Keep up
2: the authorities. I mean, right. Can we ask questions?
1: Well, I've got uh, I've got two members of the. Oh, yeah, you get to speak. I've got two members of the audience who okay. are keen to ask questions. Quite, quite quick, quite quickly. The lady there. Yeah, is that I've noticed that the Scottish police have um, found a large-scale grooming gang, but they've
4: kept it a secret. Okay.
1: It was reported in today's Scottish Sun three yeah. years after. They they did investigate the case. And people, I believe, were prosecuted. But uh, they didn't tell the people no, of Scotland about it for to three to years. OK, the gentleman over there. Uh, Neil Burns, uh, should the BBC license fee be abolished? Oh, excellent. A question we can get simple, so honest answers for, on. OK, Stephen first. BBC license fee.
2: I think there is a case for public service broadcasting Um, personally I'm not happy with the service we get from the BBC Um, it it tends to exclude our our point of view from from legitimate debate Um, there are a lot of the BBC operate through national union of journalists guidelines which which are best to report what we what a party like ours would say but never in a positive light and if there's anything negative to be said to go all in for it Um, so, so uh, the license fee wouldn't necessarily be, be a matter of principle, but the way it's spent, I, I, I think, would could be changed. But with reference to the NUGA guidelines in particular, which the journalists operate under. So... Uh,
1: um, Are I you open be, to the idea then of abolishing the, the license fee?
2: I think there can be a public interest. So I wouldn't entirely, entirely abolish it. Perhaps it should, could be... Um, it would be a shot across their bows if it was reduced, or at least not increased.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: Anthony? Yes. If you have a desirable service, you don't have to pay force people at gunpoint to pay for it
3: through the tax system, so it should be abolished. Richard? Uh, yep, yeah, family party policy is to abolish the licence fee. Again, I'm drawn to the idea of a national broadcaster. I can see a value in that, but I just see it as beyond repair. I don't think it can be redeemed and brought to any semblance of neutrality. And I think its influence is insidious because in Britain, with broadcast media, you have to be neutral. You can't have a license to set up like a Fox News in the UK. You have to be neutral. And the definition of neutral is taken roughly to mean you have got to be like the BBC. So it screws the whole of broadcast media. To the left liberal end of the spectrum so i think it it needs to go i think um producing british centered scottish centered material programming that helps unite the nation, national identity i think that's very positive but i do think there would be a market for that i think in an open market like if you look at the crown for example massive hit i think there still would be programs like that produced and with the bbc license fee, i always like to think about it this way Let's imagine you came across a country where the law was you were only allowed to buy a newspaper if you also bought the government's newspaper along with it. Mm. What would we think of that? We think this is tyranny. And yeah, that's exactly the system we've got yeah. with the BBC. Okay, uh, Tom.
4: Yeah. Um, given that Donald Trump uh, wants NATO members to contribute more, usually financially more, to NATO, should Britain contribute more? And should a possible independent Scotland remain part of NATO?
3: Okay, Richard. Uh, Position I, I on think NATO. There's a two percent. Is the agreement in NATO, and I, I'm definitely with Donald Trump when he says it's just not fair. that countries don't bother building up their own, own armed forces and just relying on America. I and mean, that is just, it's not on. That that's not sustainable long term. So then Britain should at least meet its two percent. And I think strong armed forces are very important. We don't have a family party policy because that's a reserved matter. Uh, but my personal view is I would be wanting to build up the armed forces in a very substantially just go back to independent Scotland and NATO if it wasn't it would be very vulnerable Um, but would it want to, would it be willing to spend 2% on defence? I don't know, but I think it ought to try and join NATO if it happens
2: okay, Stephen I think in general terms There's a fundamental decision to be taken in in defence is is between a standing army and and, and a militia. And and, uh, although it's a matter of principle and there would would be problems with it, I I think possibly to to bring some kind of of, of militia back um, would be an appropriate appropriate thing to review, though though certainly it would be a major decision and we wouldn't want to take it immediately. Um, Broadly, we would be happy with, with NATO um, we're not so happy with, with the uh, what seems to be a kind of continuation of the Cold War, which seems kind of unnecessary since unnecessary since the uh, collapse of the uh, Soviet Union. We would question the effectiveness of, of Britain's involvement in the Middle East, um, based on a, what seems to be naive misunderstandings of of, of political Islam. Um, Uh, I don't think that's money well spent, Uh, but but we favour a military in some form, though we would review what form it took.
0: Anthony. NATO is an organisation that was created during the Cold War and partly to ensure that if there was going to be a nuclear strike from the Soviet side, that it would happen in Europe rather than in America. They used to run all these exercises where countries like Germany would back out of the exercise in disgust because of the strategies that American America was imposing upon what would happen if they do this, what would happen if they do that. After the Berlin Wall came down, there was talks in good faith with the Russians when the America basically agreed to halt expansion of NATO, and then they went right on ahead and started courting Eastern Bloc countries to join NATO. It's an outdated institution, but not only that, as long as NATO exists, there's people there drawing an income from going around picking fights. We should get out of NATO, and the strategy of a country should be to ensure that our military is such that if anyone was to attack us or our interests, they'd know they stood to gain less from doing so than they could possibly gain from it. It's much more cost-effective to fight a defensive war than an offensive one, and we should be looking towards peace and free trade with all nations.
1: Okay.
5: Can point right. some the Okay. The last time that yeah. uh, UCAN forces were involved in any action that could be described as sensitive was the Hope War. And, so. and even that's debatable as to whether you could uh, come to some sort of arrangement with Argentina, or the stewardship of uh, Hope Falkland Islands. okay? the last time for a a, a war that was generally defensive was of course the second world war if you look after the last 30 40 years then what we call our armed forces have literally been involved in destabilizing other countries and actually making the world a lot more dangerous and if you think about it who would invade scotland who would be motivated to invade scotland because these days you don't need to invade countries you just buy them up. China doesn't need to invade Britain. You can just buy it. Russia doesn't need to invade Britain. It's you know, uh, I can't remember what, how many times the size of it, but it is, it's like it's going to be something like over fifty times the size of the, of the British Isles. Okay, they'll have no reason to. Uh, they could just buy influence if they really wanted to. Yeah, but the thing there, with there's no need, military, to, yeah. no, no need to invade it. It's not like they probably would need to invade. They couldn't
3: afford it. Yeah, the thing with modern military, like mean, the Second World War, war breaks out, we're ill prepared. Let's convert all the factories to make Spitfires and tanks and whatever. And you can do that. You just can't do that anymore. Modern military technology, you, you can't do it once the war started or once you've got like a few months' notice. There's nothing you can do. So you need to be, I think, in a greater state of preparedness for decades ahead, because there's no catching up in uh, in warfare. I'm not
5: that I, I think a country has the right to self-defense. I mean, oh, I think the only area of the world probably wouldn't inv- invade parts of Europe would be the Middle East, but that is partly destabilised by you know sort of our sort of military adventurism in that region, you know. Uh, So, I mean, I I think when we look at at the whole defense question, is we've going to look at what the British Armed Forces actually been doing over the last 30 or 40 years, which is certainly not defending Britain.
1: Okay. Right. Panel members, do you think that the record of the British Armed Forces over the last 30 or 40 years has been a good one, so-so or a bad one? And uh, Anthony? It's
0: been outrageous (laughs) and it touches upon uh, concerns about emigration as well, bombing countries and then having to, um, that have been
3: raised at the mo- this evening. Okay, Richard. Uh, two ways of taking the question, in terms of how they've performed, doing their job, I think they've been very good, not perfect, but very good. In terms of the overall influence on the world, I would see it as positive. I think there's often difficult decisions to be made and mistakes are made. But overall, I think, Britain and America, the Western Allies, have been a, an influence for good in the world. I think that's why we've had a sustained, all we've got to remember is we've had a sustained period of peace. And I think a big reason for that has been the military strength of America that hasn't got territorial ambitions, that is basically more or less keeping the peace, and I think Britain's been helping with that in many cases as well.
2: Okay, Stephen. I think the British Armed Services have an excellent record into internationally in terms of sticking to their rules of engagement, and as professional soldiers Um, that that's something we would want to to maintain. I think possibly we have to extend the concept of war that we're using because what we seem to be thinking of is kind of kinetic warfare tanks and planes and this sort of thing but um, when you're facing an ideological threat it is it's something much broader I and mean, one can think of two examples. One would be communism where, where the agenda is to, uh, to destabilize a society and um, create a revolutionary situation and uh, that, that is a kind of aggression but uh, ideological rather than physical. Uh, And of course, we're dealing with resurgent political Islam at the moment, uh, particularly through the the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and there is a whole Quranic uh, doctrine of war, of of, of jihad. uh, um, uh, And it's it's, uh, something that soldiers, uh, top brass, so to speak, need, need to be aware of. And I don't think, particularly in dealing with the Middle East. Uh, when they impo- they're happy to impose Sharia law as part of the Constitution of Iraq, for example. Uh, I don't think that shows that. That's more a question of military intelligence, and I think there's uh, a lack there. Right. Chap in the back row. Yeah, just uh, on global warming, which
4: could be discussed, is, is it... Uh, it I, think, I think it's up for debate whether it's totally man-made, or is it something that they're just lost through cycles? But just a question to the panel. Uh, is throwing money at it like Macron would do because his idea would tax uh, workers who commute. Is that a good idea or is there a more viable idea just a general
1: question? Oh, thank you. I'm glad you brought up actually because it's quite a subject that's you know, involved in a lot of areas of policy. Okay, Stephen, <coughs> first. On global warming and spending money on combating it, what are your, your and your party's views?
2: Well we would continue to review the evidence Um, I I think it's important to realize that uh, European countries and and Canada uh, have been quite good at at, at this whereas um, the industrializing nations particularly India and China uh, and and, um, Africa where where there's a a major sort of causal factor in terms of uh, the demographic explosion um, they are also things that need to be looked at internationally Um, My overall feeling is that um, there's probably some kind of scare elements and and looking at uh, unreliable multi-factor projections but um, there appears at least to to be some basis and that that would justify uh, expenditure.
1: Anthony?
0: It's a complicated issue. Um, all sceptical when the only solutions to a problem ever promoted are let the government control you more or let the government tax you more so especially when those who are you know, those in, in this particular field of study those who gain grants and things like that are those who come down on the official line that doesn't mean that global warming necessarily isn't true or that um it isn't man-made. But if it is, we need the resources, the growth that we get from being able to burn fossil fuels in order to have the wealth to to combat the consequences of global warming. And Matt Ridley's done great work in this. If we do want to take a, a harsh judgment on what we're going to do regarding the issue of carbon emissions, then everyone's going to need to accept that um, they're going to have to admit far lower standards of living than we enjoy at the moment so it's a conversation for society to have whether they, they actually want to make that sacrifice and um, I'm not an expert on the data so that's where I'm up to at the moment.
3: Okay Richard? Has, someone got a touch on the Scottish Family Party today. A uh, dad has said his nine-year-old daughter has coming home from the school in tears saying that everyone was going to be dead in ten years. Global warming. So uh, I think that's a real indoctrination issue, indoctrination issue in schools. My personal take: I don't think anyone could convince me either way about man-made global warming, whether it's definitely the case or it definitely isn't. I just think that the Earth's climate system is too complex, and no one understands it well enough to actually be able to get a grip on this. And when people speak about it, as Anthony said, I don't trust academic establishments to be neutral. I think that the issue is very politicized. And the EU and the UN are driving a lot of the discussion and creating the official line. And I'm going to look at the other official lines they take. I think they're virtually all wrong. So it doesn't fill me with confidence. Uh, family Party policy is that any measures taken to tackle climate change, they've got to be measured, costed, and they've got to be thought through instead of just like knee jerk reaction to activists. So, what happened in Scotland? If the Scottish Government declared a climate emergency, because a bunch of kids gathered outside the parliament. I mean, they should be just embarrassed that that's their the level of, of thinking, that's what's driving government policy on the issue. Um, so we certainly want to do away with that sort of nonsense and just try and get it onto a more rational discussion basis.
1: Okay, does anyone have uh, a burning question about an issue we haven't canvassed so far? Okay, sir. Hello, my name's Peter. Scotland has a major problem with its deficit
2: which
1: is unsustainable. Whether or not it becomes so how would you, you know, party, cut? See, um, okay, Richard, on uh, Scotland, on Scotland's uh, deficit.
3: Right. The Scottish Family Party's policy is that the country shouldn't be running as a deficit unless there's some sort of crisis going on. So it needs to be eliminated. pretty sharpish How do you do that? That goes into a lot of areas where we don't have policies. But in the, if you imagine the Scottish Parliament is budget time, they're all talking about the various things. We would be the people who stood up and said, look, you're just borrowing, you're maxing out your borrowing again. You've got no plan to pay it back. What are you doing? That This just doesn't make sense. And we think that contribution, and when I mean, you've got your, your six minutes for your speech, just someone saying that would be really important, even if they haven't got the other things to say. save. I mean, one area where you could save instantly would be the Uh, The sock public charities in the third sector, which is just mammoth in Scotland. Well, I find it quite fun sometimes. I just make up the names of organizations. You can just like put three random words together Scottish Care Network, say. Go onto Google, it probably exists. (laughs) (laughs) an office of people, and they've got a graphic designer, so just cut the loss. And I think that would save it's not like a massive percentage of the total Scottish budget, but it would be a good start. Uh, okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> right. Um, okay. Anthony. Right. Um, I'm not responsible for the policy on this matter, but our central plank of our platform is to cut wasteful spending. Now, I think that needs to be paired with some other things, because when the economy is used to a certain amount of government money going into it it experiences a contraction when the government stops printing money to put that in. In order to cushion the blow, we need to radically free the market, deregulate the marketplace, so that it's easier for businesses to hire people, so that they have less expenses on red tape, and they can pay people more to actually do jobs creating things that help people. So we'd have to come with a raft of policies to liberalise the economy so that the blow from the injection of money into the economy would be cushioned.
1: Okay. Right. Does someone have an, uh, another issue? Uh, an issue we haven't canvassed already? Chap at the back. Hello,
5: uh, Rufus. Um, do you see uh, a big or strong state as compatible with or opposed to uh, a strong family?
4: or
1: neutral, if we are. Right,
0: okay, Anthony. Well, no one likes competition, and the state traditionally hasn't really liked competition with your religious affiliation or your family. So I would probably say Mm. that no, it's it's probably, it's not necessarily incompatible, but I think the incentives are such that it would tend to under, well, certainly through history, it seems to have undermined that rela- relationship.
3: Richard? I In terms of big state, small state, I would look at it on an issue-by-issue issue basis. Do I think the state should be involved with this issue, this, this issue, this issue? When I do that, my overall conclusion puts me on the small state end of the spectrum, very definitely. Does big state interfere in family life? Very definitely. And if you look at the communist ideology which in various diluted forms, issues, uh, influences a lot of left-wing thought, then they tend to be the big state side of the political spectrum. And I think that anti-family theme goes through it very clearly. And I've got a book about um, comments about the family by Marx, Engels, uh, um, <coughs> Lenin, Stalin. And so many other things, it's pretty similar to you'll hear Nicola Sturgeon mm-hmm. or virtually any of them, saying in the Scottish Parliament. So that's mm-hmm. part of a political ideology that I'm very definitely against. Uh, yeah. On the small state side,
2: okay, Stephen. I wouldn't necessarily um, say that there's a conflict in all cases. and I think family choice could be increased in, in education through, through a voucher system, for example, as, as opposed to the uh, to, to the national curriculum. I'm broadly sympathetic to to, to family autonomy. Um, uh, but obviously, I think, as is acknowledged, there are, there are extreme cases where uh, the public interest or the interests of the fam- family members will will, uh, uh, will require public inter- intervention. Um, yeah, we, we would see the family as, as an important building block and, and, and uh, its autonomy uh, should be uh, strengthened, should be maintained and strengthened.
1: Okay. Um, Right. Okay.
4: Okay. Uh, again. um, I'd like to hear the. What would the panelists' views be on removing uh, American and NATO troops from the Middle East?
1: Right now, whose turn is it to go first this time? Um, Stephen. British and NATO troops out of the Middle East where where would you stand
2: It would need to be looked at on a country by country basis Um, I believe we would tend to be sympathetic I I think that the level of of, uh, understanding of these countries um, isn't great it's not always um, there seems to be an interest in destabilizing thing uh these countries which, which i mean if you look at the debate in syria there was a time when we were seemed to be attacking assad and by implication supporting isis or not isis but isis by another name and then the policy switched around so it doesn't suggest that there's a great deal of of independent thinking at, at, the, at the british level um the american level is somewhat somewhat different um but i would i'm not persuaded that they have a, uh, a project that's going to uh, accomplish good and that's, that's realisable, it tends to have a destabilising effect. Um, there's been a general thing in the Middle East of having sort of authoritarian secular governments, but one of, one of the major things is the rise of Muslim Brotherhood um, uh, organised Muslim Brotherhood groups, which kind of ha- are quite adept at presenting themselves as something other than they are. And I'm not sure that um, the military can, can impose order, but, but there are downsides to, to having a, a militaristic society. We wouldn't want it in our country. Uh, and uh, nor, nor, nor would people uh, as a default position want it in the Middle East. So um, I don't think the level of ideological understanding is, is typically uh, such as to justify military intervention, given the cost in life.
0: today, yeah. Our country has caused nothing but problems with its involvement in the Middle East from taking out democratically elected leaders in countries like Iran to supporting Saddam Hussein and then removing him from power to training the Mujahideen to go up against the communists that then became Al-Qaeda. We need to be stop spending money bombing people, creating resentment against us. I'm always reminded of a story from history in which um, Julius Caesar went during his invasions in Africa to a village and would kill everyone in that village and then bring the neighboring chiefs to look at what he'd done so that they would surrender. He was Uh, succeeded i believe by augustus caesar who coined the term make peace or war when he was making his invasions in africa he would go to one village and build uh, an aqueduct and give them sewers and then bring the chiefs from the neighboring villages to look at the marvels that Rome had to offer, and they too would acquiesce. Now, I'm not saying that we should be going around building aqueducts, but our influence in the world should be positive. We should show what free market capitalism and the products of Western civilization are and how they advantage people, and we should influence the world that way, not through military force. Well, we've, have we not
1: convinced the Chinese of the benefits uh, of the benefits of capitalism <laughs> uh, but we've yet to convince them of the benefits of democracy?
0: Um, well, uh, we, 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 are, we have not exactly shown ourselves to be a shining example of democracy in all cases yet so maybe we can work on the project
3: of becoming a better example in that respect too. Okay, Richard. Uh, the Middle East is very complex, I'm not an expert in it at all. I think you've got a lot of nations there that are quite dangerous and difficult and do need keeping in check. There are <coughs> some nations that if they could get away with it, would be aggressive to various other neighbours. I think often in that area, you're dealing with different groups. You've got the bad, the worst, and the terrible. So it's quite difficult to get any sort of positive outcome. <coughs> One of my greatest attractions to renewable energy, obviously wind farms or whatever, is if we could free ourselves from dependence on oil and the Middle East Stop being of this strategic importance. I think that would be a really positive thing for the world, and also some of the regimes there currently rely on being able to to have oil wealth rather than developing a proper you know, democracy a proper economy. Then I think if they had to do that, I think that would take a lot of the heat out of the situation there, and there'd be a much better future. So, yeah, that's the best one of the best arguments for renewable energy, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So
5: you're in wind farms. Sorry. You're in favour of wind farms.
3: Oh, for that reason, <laughs> in, in moderation. Okay, right.
5: Uh, yeah, a very, very quick, very quick one. Okay. Um, this is um, two, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, there's this guy called Mark Curtis. Okay, I think goes on a different side of the political spectrum. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote excellent book called Super Affairs, which is basically in the role of MI five in conjunction with Mossad and. Um, uh, the CIA, asserted Their role in actually, um, you know, arm and train the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in across the Middle East and, and North Africa, uh, especially in Egypt, but also in Syria, for example. There was the famous attack, basically in, in Homs in 1980 uh, something. I can't remember exactly what year. This was when the predecessor to dad, Okay, um, sad so scene there it. basically it's responsible for, ma- for a massacre of several thousand people. And this is always cited as saying Assad is a really bad guy, we get rid of it. Yeah. It's actually the British who trained uh, what we're was in the Muslim Brotherhood.
2: Okay. try to ask okay. the back in the 19- right. okay. I would resist All that Sorry What was the quick cool
5: point?
1: I yeah, <laughs> uh, I thought it was going to be a quick yeah, point, right <coughs> Okay, right, we'll have the last question and it's going to and I Can I, can, can well, I just respond, to, respond to that? Yeah, yeah, right. can
2: right. we respond to good good that? Um, okay. I think we, uh, we should possibly at least question or, or get away from the, uh, the project of, of, of uh, not giving these um, uh, resurgent Islam its own agency. So I, I think no doubt we engage with these people, but they have their own project going back to the 1920s uh, when, when they were founded, they have their own ideology. So uh, I, I would question it, I haven't seen this book, but uh, it sounds yeah. interesting. But uh, Uh, I I think certainly they have their own agency, their own their own agenda.
0: Right, very briefly. If it's true, it should come as no surprise to anyone. We've backed radical Islam in Saudi Arabia. They they open up Wahhabi schools everywhere. We backed radical Islam when we intervened in Kosovo. Um, not only that, there was a case where in Syria, the Pentagon was being found to fund one faction that was fighting against another faction funded by the CIA, mm-hmm. and that was exposed in the media. So, you really, it really shouldn't surprise anyone if that is true. There is a book called The Devil's Game by a leftist cataloging how the West has empowered radical
3: Islam. Mm-hmm. Right. OK, I'll, I'll, I won't have anything to say about this specific question, but just to conclude, help us out to a booklet, we've got our policy booklet at the back and other leaflets. Um, the Scottish Family Party, you can be what we call an associate member, which is someone who's a member of another party. You get two votes in Scotland, so why can't you be in two parties? Um, there are membership forms there. And the other thing is uh, that the venue is a bit more expensive than we, than we budgeted for, so if you did want to chip in a bit, that would be appreciated. There's the, the black tray at the back. If you wanted to put a couple of pounds on, that would be great. That's entirely up to you. And uh, thanks for coming.
1: Yeah, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you.